0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Institute for Government uh, for this event, which, uh, as the people who uh, are in the uh, overspill room will have realized, is uh, one of our best sellers ever, or at least it would be if we charged anything (coughs) for it. Um, So it's an absolute pleasure to be able to welcome to the Institute for Government here today uh, a very esteemed former colleague of mine. I have to say, when I knew Ivan as a you know, Treasury official way back, I didn't realize he would become quite the box office attraction <laughs> that he is yeah. today. Uh, but anyway, but uh, Brexit has had some very unlikely consequences, and that probably <laughs> is top of the list. So anyway, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Jill Rush. I'm Program Director here, and I'm very delighted to be joined by Sir Ivan Rogers. Lots and lots of initials after that. Can't be bothered with that. Um, who, as you know, was until January 20 when was it? 2017. My God, that's yeah. so long ago. Uh, till January 2017, the UK's permanent representative in Brussels. Before that, had been Europe advisor in the Cabinet Office, and before that, had done a number of roles both in the Treasury and also, unusually, in the European Commission. So he is one of. The uh, relatively rarefied briefs of British civil servants who have both worked in London and Brussels, as well as a bit of time out in banking. So, if any of you want to know the full extended horrors and thoughts of Ivan's uh, analysis of what has gone wrong so far, they are available in a lot of 22,000 word lectures available <laughs> online. Not quite that bad. Those <laughs> of you who want it in your sort of John MacDonald codified little grade book. Nine lessons from Brexit, Uh, that's Ivan's thoughts. So we are relentlessly not going to focus on the past. You can ask questions about that. We are instead going to focus on the future. So Ivan, (coughs) welcome here today. Um, You gave an interview uh, with Der Spiegel uh, last week. came out last week, uh, where you said that, uh, they said, well, if you were advising a future government, you said, no government's going to ask me (laughs) back, but I'm going to go through this (laughs) sort of thought experiment, uh, that there is a new government coming in. Uh, They've actually sort of landed, where the Prime Minister's withdrawal agreement is through, but they're then looking forward to say, well, actually, that was the easy part, you've said that. We're now facing these uh, future relationship negotiations. Uh, and who might actually have some insights about how to do that? That's that Ivan Rogers guy who keeps on sounding off all over the place. Um, so you're invited back into the fold to be to advise on how we how we need to approach those future relationship negotiations. So, what's your advice? How do we get it righter second time round?
1: Well, first of all, thanks very much for inviting me. Uh, delighted to do it. Um, uh, as you say, I, I specialise in the kind of long statements in lectures and books, so I'll try and, uh, try and be a bit briefer. Um, I think my, my advice would be, this: once you get into the trade deal and the economic deal and then associated security and other deals, this is actually the complex bit still to come. It's much more complex um, and involves much more of Whitehall uh, and should involve Westminster a lot more than the exercise to date. I'm not saying, I'm not disparaging you know, the exercise to date, but that's solely about withdrawal terms and then a rather vague political declaration. I said in the Spiegel okay. interview that the political declaration is vague primarily because the Brits okay. wanted it vague because it's still not terribly clear where we're going and there are obvious divisions within the government and across the House as to where we're going. And um, we're only really going to get to the debate about where we're we going and why in the okay. next stage. You have to view this as an extraordinarily important and complex trade negotiation, but it's more than just a trade negotiation. The other, one of the points I'm obviously laboring at every turn at the moment is to say, this is the first major trade negotiation I can think of between developed countries or a developed country in a block where you're in the process of trying to get further apart. So most trade negotiations I've ever worked on are A process of convergence and dismantling and ideally over time eliminating barriers to trade between two jurisdictions and the game and why is that difficult in trade negotiations because although you might want to privilege the economics over the negotiation in the end you've got to come out as a balanced deal that both sides can represent as having made real progress on the dismantling of barriers (laughs) in the others market that matter most of them we all know that the economics really means that quite a lot of your benefits Mm. from a trade deal are what you dismantle in your own jurisdiction, Mm. but you can't sell a trade deal to the public or to politicians uh, like that. Mm. This is a different trade deal because we're seeking to get further apart. Now, the European Union would say, does say, Mm. will carry on saying for the next several years, that's your choice, you chose to leave, you chose to leave the jurisdiction, the supranational legislation, the adjudication enforcement. Mm. So... This is a very different process from just a trade deal. It's—I—I I, I was describing it to the media well before the referendum in Brussels as a de-accession process as, as well as a trade agreement. And what do I mean by de-accession? You know what the process oh. of accession looks like for those seeking to join the European mm-hmm. Union under Article 49. Mm-hmm. It takes several years, and there's a huge and very lengthy and mm-hmm. contorted and technical process of convergence across 35 different chapters of the acquis communautaire, the law book for the European Union. Mm. This is partly about the negotiation of a genuine new trade deal. It's partly about the process of deaccession and disentangling ourselves in each of those areas. But, of course, why is it more difficult? I'm constantly trying to explain to uh, mostly disbelieving uh, politicians it's more difficult than most trade deals because, by definition the process of accession, you know what you're acceding to. Okay, it's a moving target and it's a law book, but you're acceding to it and you're converging on it. And if you don't converge on it, you can't join the European Union. Until we can specify where ultimately we want to go to and the European Union side of the table is constantly going to say, well, you chose to leave, so you must want to diverge. What the hell are you leaving for unless you want to diverge in multiple areas and by some distance? Um, So that's where they would line up with kind of Eurosceptic forces Mm. and say, well, you must have had a purpose in leaving and it's not solely a sovereignty purpose. You must want to do something with your sovereignty. Please specify what you have in mind. And therefore, we're diverging to an unknown destination. So I think for Whitehall, this is more difficult than a Mm. trade deal. It's more comprehensive. It'll cover every department Mm. in Whitehall. And in each area, we're going to have to work through in our own negotiating mandate, where do we want to land up whilst also recognising that in the negotiation in multiple areas, we aren't going to land up where we first specify that we want to land up. So this is a much bigger task for London, for Whitehall and for Westminster than the negotiation Mm. we've been through. It's going to involve every Department of State in depth Mm. and the top of those Departments of State, but also right down through the system. And then why are trade negotiations mm. difficult? In the end, you're going to have to make mm. choices and trade-offs and decide what really counts to you when up against it and when the other side puts you up against it under time pressure in 2020, 2021, mm. 22, or whenever the deal finalises.
0: So you've been quite critical of some of the British side, but you've also actually been interestingly critical of the EU's approach to its negotiations with the UK, saying that actually they haven't been thinking, they've been thinking very tactically um, and done that quite successfully in the withdrawal agreement. withdrawal agreement is quite easy, money off Brits, not very hard to know you want as much as you can, things like that, but they haven't been thinking strategically about how to relate to this big sort of, not exactly elephant, but this big offshore uh, power, it's their closest, uh, closest friendly power if you like. Um, what do you think that EU thinking should be like about the nature of the future relationship with the UK, where do you think they should be going? If there's a bit of a vacuum of thinking on our side, what do you think actually that you should conceive of as a positive way forward with the UK? Can it do that?
1: I think it struggles to do that, and it struggles at leader level to do it at European councils, and it's not just with the British, it struggles to do that, and there are occasional strategic discussions at leader level, European council level of relations with kind of major third countries. They often don't achieve very much, and you have to say that the Foreign Affairs Council beneath that, frequently Mm. is a bit of a talking shop as Mm. well and isn't very good at strategic thinking. Why am I critical? Look, I think they've run a brilliant Mm. process. It's a technocratic Mm. process run by technocrats and lawyers and theologians, and they're very good at it. And let's be fair to them. What were they facing on the morning of June the 24th? I have to say Mm. they were in better shape to act on the morning of June the 24th than we were. But by the morning of June the 28th in the European Council, Mm. I was... Obviously, dealing with David Cameron, who'd already resigned as Prime Minister for that European Council, they'd already reached a set of conclusions that nobody was reading in London, Mm. as far as I could see. Um, Now, at that stage, they're worried that Brexit might be the beginning of the end, might be uh, the beginning of a series of departures from the Mm. European Union and uh, a process of disintegration. So they pledge, as you would expect them to do, sort of undying loyalty to each mm. other the The project goes on they had the Bratislava program the twenty seven will develop a kind of new program a new momentum. And they wanted to demonstrate that they were all going to hang together because they were dead scared at that point that a British government would be Mm -hmm. agile and sophisticated enough to try and pull them apart through the withdrawal Mm -hmm. process. So that was, I mean, Mm -hmm. little did they know. Um, uh, But there you are, I mean, that was the fear. That's what they did on June the 28th. Uh, They did it again at the October European Mm -hmm. Council in 2016, Mm -hmm. which was the first one this prime minister actually attended. She had already, by then, in my view, given Mm -hmm. her fateful party Mm -hmm. conference speech, which made the relationship much more more difficult, Mm -hmm. but leave that aside. They therefore thought we have to set up a process and a process obviously uh, based on Article 50 and we have to get the Brits to invoke Article 50 uh, and go down an Article 50 route because they were worried that the Brits might choose to subvert the treaties and say we don't recognise your process and we might go a different route. So everything they privileged in the first three or four months, which I think was an error on their part, Mm. but a totally understandable Mm. one, was solidarity of Mm. the 27th, we hang together, not separately, no separate discussions Mm. with the British. And if you remember Mm. the mantra Mm. I was dealing with all through the Mm. summer of 16, it was no negotiation without notification. Mm. Force the Brits Mm. to notify under Article 50, otherwise don't negotiate with them. I was saying to all my best friends, Mm. both in the institutions and other member states, look, I understand why you do that. I understand why you you fear this is the beginning of the end. But if you freeze out um, a new prime minister and a new entourage, uh, people who don't know anything about it, she never attended a leaders meeting, Uh, the people around her didn't know very much about European Mm. councils or indeed very much about the European Mm. Union. If you freeze her out and say, we're not even going to start thinking about any of this stuff with you until you've notified Mm. under Article 50, I fear that will put us on tramlines to disaster. I was saying that in September, October 2016, because I thought the way in which we're going to set this up, they'll set up a process designed to sort us out on money, uh, to sort out the issue of citizens' rights, hopefully amicably, and to deal with the Irish border (coughs) question. Once we're on those tramlines, and that's what it's all about, they'll set up a choreography of the Article 50 Mm. process designed to maximize, you know, the pressure on the UK, use the pressure of deadlines in the way that they've done very skillfully. That's all fine, but that then enabled leaders, candidly, not to think about Brexit at all. I would say at least until the Salzburg Mm. Summit in September 2018, leaders spent remarkably little time together, even bothering to discuss Brexit. They thought we've set up a, a smooth, clever, technocratic process, that will work, it's under control, Michel Barnier mm. is doing a good job as our negotiator, mm. we don't need to think about it. So, I, didn't, I do mm. need to think about mm. it because we're... A, a, uh, this is a difficult relationship. Mm. Trust has corroded, mm. let's be honest, and it mm. corroded while well, I was there. I mean, I know mm. the levels of mm. trust between the two sides are, are not great and they're, they're eroding further. You have a problematic relationship with the British who are an important player. You're, you're a major strategic partner and your mm. biggest trade partner in this side mm. of the planet. Biggest trade partner mm. on the planet. This is going to get more bumpy and conflictual mm. and contorted unless they think strategically about how are we going to deal with the British post-Brexit and what does that relationship mm. need to look like, what does it consist in and where do we want it to go. And where I'm critical mm. of them is I do think they've been... I think it's entirely understandable Mm. and it's, uh, of course, for a while there was a lot of schadenfreude Mm. at British expense about this Mm. of a kind of, these guys can't get their act together, London Mm. can't think, coherently, they're unable to say anything halfway coherent or cogent, until they do, we don't need Mm. to bother with them. I do think that's actually a strategic mistake Mm. because you're just sort of saying, well, until London sorts itself Mm. out and gets its act together and says something halfway Mm. intelligent, consistent with any destination, we might ever agree, we don't need Mm. to bother. And the result is, two and a half years later, this is the mess we're in.
0: So do you get any sort of resonance in Brussels when you give that message, or is it all basically on ice until after the European Parliament elections, new commission, new commission president? So basically you know, thinking about where do we actually want to end up with the Brits until... Uh, until the autumn.
1: Oh, I, I certainly think for this, I mean, this is why this is, yeah. this is a very sensible conversation to have about the future because I think they are basically saying either this withdrawal agreement is there and done mm. and it goes through broadly mm. unchanged with you know, some, you know, some, mm. uh, some, some tweaks and reassurances mm. and uh, elucidations mm. or it collapses in which case we're in a different world. But there's no appetite now to think strategically about the British question and think afresh mm. about have we done this the right way. I mean, this is it now and either the Brits sign off Mm. on this in the end and it gets through on Meaningful Vote Mm. 2 or 3 or 43, or it collapses, in which case we're in a new world. But is there an appetite around capitals to think big thoughts and fresh thoughts about the British question? No, not at the moment.
0: So is there anything the British can do? If you were sitting there and you're sitting there in the new Prime Minister's office or... Prime Minister who's had a rethinks office, saying, what can we do to reset the agenda? Is there anything the UK can be doing now or in the next few months, perhaps after withdrawal agreement, goes through to start actually laying the ground, rolling the picture a bit better for a more positive thing? We've seen quite a lot of attempts during the withdrawal negotiations to a bit of divide and rule, of uh, thinking you could appeal over Michel Barney and Task Force 50 to Capitals, uh, do capitals matter or should we give that up as a losing gambit? What would you, what would you advise on diplomatic engagement?
1: Well, capitals obviously matter, but I think, uh, you know, having lived through this with a number of different prime ministers and a number of different negotiations and not just prime ministers, I mean, I think that reflects in the British system always to think, OK, we can deal direct with the, uh, the organ grinders and not the mm. monkeys kind of stuff. Yeah. It never works like that. And it didn't work like that in the Cameron renegotiation either. Mm. And you think you can or should want to circumvent the mm. negotiator, but the negotiator mm. is working for the European mm. Council. Um, and actually, what I tried to explain to David Cameron, as I've tried to explain mm. to previous, previous Prime Ministers as well, and tried to explain to this mm. Prime Minister, is, look, when you visit other capitals, and maybe mm. you're the first British mm. Prime Minister, or the first Foreign Secretary to go there for a very long time, uh, they're very pleased to see you. It's a big moment, it's sometimes a very big event. Mm. Um, they're not going to give you blunt and <laughs> difficult messages face-to-face in those kind of... Uh, and they didn't when mm. you know, Cameron was on mm. his tour of Europe. That's what you have mm. Sherpas and permanent mm. representatives for, and they deliver the difficult message to people like me, mm. in, in the belief that <clears> then it's my job to get yeah. it through to my Prime Minister, that there are various red lines that they have which they're not going to cross. Mm. And that's how the system works. And, the, and therefore, in the jargon of Brussels on these kind yeah. of negotiations, you often have things called confessionals, where the council presidency yeah. team and the commission team will call in member yeah. states' you know, key officials yeah. and get a download of what their bosses really care about and what their bottom lines really are and what their must-not-cross lines really are. Yeah. That stuff is not done in the way British politics works, mm. leader to leader. Mm. It's done via the bureaucrats and via mm. the Sherpas and the permanent mm. representatives and the people at the top of the institutions. And the Brits constantly um, either misunderstand that or just don't realise that circumventing that and thinking, oh, we can go direct to Berlin or Paris or you mm. know, any other capital and square that off, mm. and that will be different from the orthodoxy we're getting out of the institutions, mm. nearly always fails. Now, it is different than the trade negotiation. What I would say is that it's easier for the 27 to keep solidarity mm. in the withdrawal right. negotiation than it will be in the trade mm. negotiation. They'll have a more difficult job keeping together as a mm. 27 because their interests diverge and their economic interests are not all the same. Now, they have a process now, when we get into the trade mm. negotiation, of drawing up a mandate mm. at 27, Everybody's job, when you're the Perm Rep or the Sherpa, is to ensure that key bottom lines for your member state get into that mandate at the outset, so that you're not forgotten. But lots of member states will be worried that their interests will, in the end game, be subordinated to the big member states. And so there are ways there where there will be you know, certain member states on specific issues who will be minded to be more helpful to the British than others. Nevertheless, as the Canadians found out, in the end, um, when you're negotiating with Mm. the EU, you actually need quite a lot of coherence from the 27, Mm. and you do, in the end, have to rely on the Commission to enforce Mm. that coherence. (laughs) because sometimes it's to your advantage that there's a plethora of different Mm. voices around the table. But in the end, you've got to reach a deal Mm. with with the EU as a whole, and they've got to be able to get it through and get unanimity for an agreement on it.
0: And there's some member states for whom the security relationship will matter hugely more than the trade relationship. So how closely should the UK try to link those two? We had that sort of odd moment, didn't we, where we appeared to be threatening in the initial article 50 notification and then had to clarify very quickly that we weren't trying to sort of you know threaten europe's security in order to get a decent relationship but how would you play that interlinkage between security and trade
1: well there is there is clearly a linkage but i mean playing it in a sort of crass and you know potentially threatening fashion isn't going to work and nor do people really believe that if it's in your own security interest and you care about it you're really going to withdraw Uh, intensive security Mm. cooperation because they've done you over in a trade deal. So they don't really believe it. Now, there are people, as you say, who are really rather fond of London and often look to London as opposed to other other major capitals and thought that London might be their best friend in geostrategic Mm. terms and had the right instincts both on Mm. NATO and on Atlanticism and whatever else. So there are people who have a tremendous kind of fondness Mm. and affection for the UK for, for, for which that will, I mean, that, I, I suppose my proposition is that mm. buys you relatively mm. limited amounts when it comes to the kind of trade and economic mm. stuff that is that run from the centre. Mm. But does it count? It, it counts for stuff, yeah, mm. of course. Because I don't think that, I, don't, I can't think of any European leader. They may all now looking at, look at this mm. more in sorrow than mm. anger. You see what the mm. Danish Prime Minister said overnight, mm. which was fairly acerbic stuff. But people don't want a dysfunctional and distant relationship mm. with the UK after exit. They want to try and make it work. Mm. I think the job in the UK system will be to think, what's the win-win out of this negotiation? Because, after all, we will be approaching this negotiation from the baseline, which the others won't be, and I think we, we, we need to think about this. We'll be approaching from the baseline of, there's an awful lot about the current relationship, mm. including the current mm. economic relationship, that we want broadly mm. the status quo on. You can see that littered mm. through mm. the UK documents. I mm. mean, some of the, mm. some of the Her Majesty's <laughs> government's documents yeah. are highly entertaining to read, if you are me, because you think, actually, so mm. much of it is a litany of what we actually like about the status quo that we don't want to see any revision in at all. I'm sorry, but the other side of the table mm-hmm. will say, but hang on, you chose to leave. You chose mm-hmm. to leave the supranational legislation, the, the enforcement mm-hmm. and the jurisdiction. You chose to end budget contributions and you want to leave the customs union in order to run your own sovereign mm-hmm. trade policy. All the kinds of things that you like about the status mm-hmm. quo are not automatically on offer. They're not going to be on offer mm-hmm. to a non-member of the club. So their baseline would be to say, you have left, you chose to leave, we have an FTA or whatever it turns out to be with you like any other third country. But the baseline is you chose to leave, whereas the Brits still mentally, you can see it riddled through every UK government document, are still mentally thinking, well, in loads of areas, we broadly like everything about the economics or the security relationship, with the status quo. And that applies to plenty of economic domains where you see what the British Mm. government has uh, written, Mm. or things like European arrest warrant, where we say, well, we don't want to mess up extradition Mm. arrangements and the pace Mm. of those extradition arrangements. We simply want to leave the European arrest warrant system. Well, but if you leave the European arrest arrest warrant system and uh, and, uh, 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 that was devised, Mm. but the jurisdiction... Essential central to it. So you can't just say, well, we'll have all the substance and all the substance benefit with none of the jurisdiction. It's not going to work.
0: So is there any bespokery that you actually think is sort of there for the taking? I mean, there were some German academics a couple of weeks ago who published something saying that actually uh, EU plus the UK was much better offer to other markets for trade yeah. agreements. And therefore, actually, the EU shouldn't rule out what's always been dismissed as sort of Labour's unicorn of a say in EU trade policy. Don't call it the customs union, call it customs, you know, association, but we would then negotiate jointly with a bit of a UK say. I mean, are there sort of bits of bespokery that are, in a sense, more deliverable than, uh, than some of the bits you've sort of, you know, said of, you know... Yeah, Yeah, I I mean, yes to that,
1: although I don't think that it will be sustainable long term to live in a... Personally, Mm. I don't think we'll stay in a customs union long term and uh, not have, you know, a a greater degree of autonomy Mm. over our trade policy because we would get consultation Mm. rights, sure, Mm. the Turks have that. We Mm. might get superior consultation Mm. rights, but they would only be consultation Mm. rights. And in the end, the mandate would reflect... The negotiating mandate for the 27 would reflect mm. the interest of the 27, mm. no doubt, then articulated carefully to take account of British interest. Is, do I honestly think in political terms in this country that that's a sustainable mm. long-term solution, staying in a customs union uh, long-term is going to be sustainable in UK politics? No, I don't. Now, bespokery, mm. I think people get caught up on bespokery because, and you know, I had this mm. discussion in 2016 where people... Um, I, I'm sure thought that I was just being too theological mm. and saying no, you're either in or you're out. Mm. If you leave the single market, you leave the single market. If you leave the customs union, you leave the customs union. And I was mm. saying and continue mm. to say there aren't sort of sectoral elements, because we had a lot of these discussions yeah. internally yeah. even amongst the bureaucrats, of could we have sort of sectoral arrangements mm. where we had all the benefits of the internal <laughs> energy market mm. but we were completely sovereign and free on the financial mm. services side. Mm. Answer? No, that's not going to happen. Mm. Are there as part of a trade deal that you negotiate with the European Union, ways of getting to an unprecedentedly deep trading relationship which goes further than any FTA mm. they've struck mm. with it. Yes, I think there will be. Mm. But that's going to be... That goes back to my point of what is the mm. nature of the process. Area by area, sector by sector, chapter by chapter, you're going to have to go through this in-depth mm. and there'll be separate negotiations on everything from fish to audio-visual, all of which will be extremely difficult, and where the other side's baseline effectively is not our baseline, we'll be saying there's an awful lot about the status quo that we just want to replicate as far as possible, and that must be in our joint economic interest. Mm. And we had that endlessly mm. from you know, Boris Johnson and David Davis and all the, all the others at the outset, that it must be in their interest effectively, economically, and their economic interest would override mm. the, theolo- the theologians mm. of the centre. It won't, it, and it won't happen in the trade deal any more than it happened in the withdrawal deal, because they'll say, No, you chose to leave... And there are certain types of depth of relationship mm. in the economic sphere mm. which only come mm. with membership. And therefore, you've chosen to exit. The baseline is you now work up from the bottom to the maximum possible uh, free trading FTA kind of relationship that you can get.
0: Okay, last question for me before we go to the audience. We've, you've said how complex this is from a Whitehall point of view. Uh, it's going yeah. to involve most government departments. Difficult trade-offs... Two years ago, when we published our Taking Back Control of Trade Policy, the only time Jeremy Hayward's office have ever rung me up to complain about a report was that I said that Whitehall wasn't set, well set up to make the trade-offs you need to do to make trade policy. Uh, I offered him a platform to come and say why I was wrong. Uh, he didn't take it, and I think I win there, <laughs> uh, she said. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Platform's still open, there, unfortunately not to Jeremy. Um, How does Whitehall need to set itself up to run its side of this negotiation as effectively as possible, given how the Europeans will approach it, how the EU will approach it?
1: Uh, Well, I would run it from the centre, um, uh, and I would have a sizeable but not huge team at the centre running the trade negotiation and drawing on all the capabilities of the departments. I think you need in the kind of jargon, a matrix mm. uh, style of management. Bear in mind that senior officials say in DCMS or DEFRA or mm. Treasury or wherever else will report and do report to their own Secretaries of State who will have their own, you know, vehement mm. interest. Say you're in DCMS and mm. you're, you know, uh, uh, bothered about both data and audiovisual mm. and those are your two preoccupations. Mm. That's what your Secretary of State most cares about. And you articulate mm. in the department all the things mm. that you really want in the state of the world. That looks to you at the top of that department Mm. and for the Secretary of State Mm. to be the most important single thing over the next two to three years and what you'll be judged by as uh, Secretary of State. Those people are working to their Secretary of State. They also have to work at least with a dotted line to the chief trade negotiator, Mm. both official and ministerial, and they have to feel part of a collective exercise to deliver the best possible outcome for Mm. the country. They also have to understand that their interests and their mm-hmm. bottom lines may get traded mm-hmm. off in the end game by the Prime Minister, mm-hmm. who in the end has to be the arbiter mm-hmm. of what counts most for the country. This is difficult stuff to do. It's difficult stuff to do in mm-hmm. normal times mm-hmm. before we left the European Union. I've done two major coordinating jobs, mm-hmm. one for Tony Blair, one for David Cameron. They're difficult jobs to mm-hmm. do because the person who's in possession in number 10 is you know, the Prime Minister's mm-hmm. ear, ears and... Uh, nose and mouth, and also the person advising personally, the Prime Minister, what counts, what doesn't count, what's my assessment, Mm -hmm. both on the substance and on negotiability. And frequently, of course, in that job, you're going to disagree with various secretaries of state who've got their own particular Mm -hmm. interests, and you're saying, yeah, but they're overemphasising that, and actually that's not as important as this. You have to do that, in my view, with as high a degree of transparency as you can across the system. Mm Secretaries of State have to feel that their voices are being heard and that when they're relaying into Number 10 very strong views about their, their departmental preoccupations, that's being relayed by the Sherpa or the chief negotiator to the Prime mm. Minister and being taken seriously. That's got to be both at bureaucratic and at ministerial level. And the difficulty of doing those coordinating jobs, which were the greatest jobs uh, you know I've done, i am enjoyed doing the perm-rep job as well, but they are great jobs, but you are doing both the advisor, fixer, sorter, enforcer role, mm. and you're doing the umpiring, adjudication, convening mm. role, where you're trying to bring the best top talent in Whitehall to bear on a particular question, you're trying to get to a collective mm. sense of what do we care about and why. But then sometimes, of course, if you're chairing that, that meeting, you're obliged to say to top people in departments, look, I hear what you say, I know that matters to your Secretary of State, I'm going to put mm-hmm. advice to the Prime Minister, which nevertheless recommends in this direction. You may even want to show them that advice. I think my, my point is you need a m- much more openness, much more collaboration. I'm not saying everything has to be kind of open to the public world, but we are going to have to think about transparency mm-hmm. in trade negotiations. Mm-hmm. You can't operate in the way that this government has operated in the withdrawal agreement, I'm afraid, in a trade negotiation. And the other side won't. The EU has got better and more sophisticated at running trade negotiations, but it's got more open, more transparent, under obviously intense public pressure. When I was there in the European Commission, as you say, working for Leon Britain, we were running trade policy. The European Parliament had very little role at that stage. And frankly, there was very, very little public accountability and and, a very marginal role for the European Parliament. That is not sustainable, given that trade and trade liberalisation has become one of the hottest Mm. topics on the planet, whereas in Mm. the mid-1990s, nobody Mm. could give a toss about it. Everybody's going to care about this passionately in the UK. Mm. Everybody around the Cabinet table is going to think their interests (laughs) are the most important interests and have to be prosecuted and can't be abandoned by the Prime Minister. Every select committee in the House of Commons and the House of Lords is going to have very strong views about their specific mm. issues, which need to be... And you can't win it all. And in the end, the Prime Minister, backed by a, a hopefully mm. rather more united ministerial mm. team, going to have to take some very, very difficult decisions about are we going to abandon this priority mm. over here or are we going to... you know, Are we in the interest of getting ultimately a better deal, for example, on mm. services? Are we going to move on free movement of people and what does that look mm. like and is that politically saleable? Mm. Now, you can't do that in a black box mm-hmm. in number 10. You have to have um, a collaborative system across the top mm-hmm. of Whitehall and between secretaries of state, well-serviced by a, a functioning bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. And then in each area, the chief trade negotiator, You know, if it's, mm-hmm. uh, if it's a Sabine Viant mm-hmm. on the other side mm-hmm. of the table, who's a brilliant person in, 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 and, and very, very good mm-hmm. at... And DG Trade have got lots of brilliant trade negotiators. By definition... If you're the chief trade negotiator, do you know phytosanitary rules or uh, you know, the 200 mm. different types of fish that we might be negotiating uh, uh, over in fisheries negotiations as well as you know financial services? No, because you're all human. Mm. So the chief trade negotiator will know mm. much more about some things mm. than others. you therefore got to have confidence as the chief trade negotiator both at official and ministerial level, that you've got a highly competent set of people in every area from aviation to energy to phytosanitary to competition to employment. Every area, you've got to have vetted that team, know it's got the capability, know it's got the resources, know it's got the legal framework, know it's got the background and be at least as good as the people on the opposite side of the table. So if you, if that was your challenge to Jeremy, I'm not surprised he ducked it, because we have, it isn't the case, we are not in that position.
0: Okay, that was my microphone crashing. Uh, <laughs> so we've got questions from... Tim, you've got microphones? So I'm going to take uh, questions from our three front row, uh, whatever, and we'll take them back to try and get every question, and I'll ask Ivan to uh, have very short, snappy answers. Yes, okay. I'll try. Uh,
1: Dr. Kristina Maria Wilczek.
0: I have been in Washington, D.C., invited by International Institute of Strategic Study, where Gabriel was talking, Minister of Foreign Affairs from Germany. Mm -hmm. But first things, what he has done, criticized Poland and criticized the United States. And uh, uh,
1: then I stood up and told that Angela Merkel came to Poland and has told, Germany are unified, thank you. So that was the reason why United Nations, uh, U- European Union, does exist, and England doesn't need to serve this perfection. England can have their own perfection, their own identity. So good luck with Brexit as quickly,
0: Blitzschnell. schnell. Okay, thank you. <laughs> so, um, Stephen yeah. Timms,
1: I'm um, a member of the House of Commons Select Committee on Exiting the EU. Uh, The Prime Minister's now opened up the possibility of delaying the date of our departure. If the delay was to be longer than three months, it'd be a difficulty that we wouldn't be in the European Parliament, we would still perhaps be in the EU. Is there a way round that difficulty if it was determined that we needed longer than a three-month delay? And if so, what might it be? Okay, and then... Thank you very much. Uh, Joe Johnson, MP for Orpington. Uh, Ivan, what will it take to get a better deal on services than... Foreshadowed in the Chequers White Paper and in the political declaration, where, where services really has been thrown under a bus. Okay. Right. So, <laughs> um, delay. Delay. Um, I think going longer than three months is quite problematic. Um, uh, and I, I think there will be some resistance in capitals. I mean, you're seeing some of this briefing out there of you know a very long extension, mm. a year or up to 21 months. I, um, I'm not clear whether that's genuine and substantive, and you know they need much longer, and three months is unacceptable, or whether it's tactical to try and maximise the pressure on people to, mm. cut, to get to grips with the withdrawal agreement. Um, there may be a bit of both. The difficulty is the European Parliament problem is a genuine one, and if you're a Member State and remain a Member State under the treaties, then uh, it seems to me you are obliged to hold European Parliament elections, and there's bound to be a legal challenge if you don't. And I would have thought there will be fears in Brussels and in other capitals that that legal challenge might well succeed. And then, you know, if the composition of the constitution of the Parliament is, is wrong, then there are all kinds of issues about whether legislation that it's passed um, is validly passed mm-hmm. and, indeed, whether the constitution of the new European Commission is correct mm-hmm. because it's been mm-hmm. constituted and had its hearings with a Parliament that's not properly constituted. Is the obligation
0: so, to hold elections, Ivan, or is it to have MEPs? Do ah, well, that's... That we uh, can uh, nominate
1: one, one, MEPs. one hears quite a bit of both. I think it's quite... I mean because there are precedents mm. from accession, yeah. uh, including our own accession, yeah. but much more recently Romanian accession, which look at mm. uh, 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 which found ways mm. round actually having a direct election it 's nevertheless pretty difficult if you mm. are a member state and you 've always previously mm. had elections, then to justify that at the end of May, um, in these circumstances mm. you 've chosen not to hold them mm. so I mean, I defer there mm. to the lawyers both in Whitehall mm. and elsewhere, but everything I hear from other side of the table suggests this is a genuine and serious problem and that people are very preoccupied by it. Is
0: the line at the end of the day that council legal services always find a way through if the political will is there? Well, I've had a
1: few of those kind of conversations with people over the last few months of a kind of, oh, come on, you know, when leaders (laughs) sit on them, surely they'll, uh, you know, they'll find a route. But I I, I genuinely don't think it's straightforward. I'm not actually sure that leaders will sit on them anyway, because (laughs) there is an anxiety (laughs) anywhere just about about having Mm. kind of rolling extensions for the sake of it. I do think, and I, mm. I've said it publicly, impatience has grown quite mm. a bit post the events of January, Brady Amendment, Malthouse mm. and whatever, sort of feeling of we can't go on like this and just having an extension because the UK system remains paralysed. Do you not almost encourage it to remain mm. paralysed? Though, you know, if you just have a sort of rolling mm. extension process. Now, it is true that given where mm. we are, you have your doubts. If she mm. can't get it through with the next meaningful mm. vote, whenever that might be, you do have By your doubts. 12th. Well, we'll see. By the 12th. We'll see. Um, uh, we'll, yes. see you know, we'll see whether anything happens this week or, or next, but well, it, it's, it still seems to me that there's quite a big gap mm. from everything one hears and that expectations on both sides are not in the same place. Mm. And obviously, reading yeah. even the papers this morning, you can see where uh, Geoffrey Cox is yeah. on, uh, on mm. uh, unilateral rights to exit and end dates and whatever. So you can see potentially... the The landing zone, but what I can't judge is politically whether Mm. that sells to enough people inside the Conservative Party to to move it. Services, look, services, I'm very worried about this. I understand why we ended up there, um, but in my view it's the worst part of the substance of the Prime Minister's deal in terms of where she's going with her version of the political declaration. We've ended up driven there, really, mm. by a free movement of people. It's quite difficult to get around that, um, mm. uh, you know, and hear all the kind of talk about Norwegian-type models and different things in the EEA on free movement of people. But that's what's driven us to it, of accepting the indivisibility of the four freedoms and therefore recognising that you're going to have to diverge and be autonomous on services. Mm. She's, she's prioritised goods over mm. services, let's be honest, even though it's a modest proportion mm. of the economy. And you know the lo- lobbying effort, I would say, from corporates in the mm. goods world has been more effective inside Number 10 and elsewhere across the system than from services. Financial services, because I, I fear it's all still contaminated by post-financial crisis reaction to what financial mm. services are, mm. which, of course, very frequently they aren't. But, I mean, they're associated, obviously, mm. with all the events of 2008 onwards. And then other services sectors, which are enormously important and competitive for the UK mm. economy, by and large, seem to get ignored by the political class. So I think the frustration I had when within the system, mm. but I have it from outside, is the political class still obsessives about mm. tariffs and tariff rate quotas, and the number of politicians who ever mention key areas of services in which we're extremely competitive is very mm. small. I believe when we're in a trade negotiation, Mm. partly because Mm. then those services issues will come to the fore, because departments and departmental secretaries of state will bring them to the fore, we're suddenly going to discover that we're going to end up in a very bad world on services access to a much our biggest market. If you look at the UK Mm. compared with other major jurisdictions, a higher proportion of the UK's Mm. exports are of services Mm. than of any other major economy. Uh, that's one remarkable mm-hmm. fact. The other, the other remarkable fact is that for all that you hear from mm. the Eurosceptics that you know, the single market's been a failure and it's not delivered anything on mm. services, it's not worth the price of anything, actually services liberalisation mm. has gone further mm. within the European Union than elsewhere by a mile. And there's very good academic mm. evidence. About. There's a lot of things wrong with the services single mm. market in a lot of areas that we haven't completed it but our penetration of the services market in Europe is vastly greater than elsewhere because we've gone much further with deeper trade liberalisation. In the end, the economic interests of the country will start to play in a trade negotiation because they will come to the fore Mm. and it's going to be more and more obvious to economic players and businesses Mm. across the country that we're going to end up in a very bad place if politicians don't start fighting the corner. And then the trade-off will come back to, uh, you know, free movement of people questions, I guarantee you.
0: Okay, I'm just going to so say, if anyone's next door and wants to come in and ask a question, you'll have to pop your head around the door. So let's go to another set of questions. Let's start at the, uh, at, the far, at the back there, Elliot. And Tim, if you can come here, the gentleman next to the back from, yeah, there, yeah, please. Uh, hello, uh, Carol Walker. Um, you talked about the mindset within uh, government still being one that assumes uh, a lot of things about the way our current relationship works. We Just recently had Nick Timothy talking about how the Prime Minister, he felt, has seen the whole process as a problem to be managed. Do you think that that whole mindset is really going to have to change in the next phase if the UK is going to end up with anything that works? and? Would it make a difference to that if you had a Brexiteer in charge of the process?
1: Yes. Um, Robert Moreland, I'm a former member of the European Parliament. It seemed to me one of the um, areas which was the worst thing Brexit could do would be separating us off in terms of foreign policy from the rest of the EU. In the sense... It's to neither's advantage, and indeed the presence of the foreign secretary at meetings with foreign secretaries of other EU countries was important. I mean, honest, because of where we are in the world, because of Russia, uh, what I might have said in the past, the special relationship, yeah, and so
0: Question, forth. Robert. We do agree. Okay, and behind, <laughs> very good, and just behind you... You just hand
1: the mic back, yeah. yeah. Daniel Saishner, Member of Parliament for Cambridge. A simple question, what exactly is the point in either a short extension to Article 50 or an extended extension to Article 50? Right.
0: Okay, do you want to take, take those?
1: Should i take those? Yeah. Um, on Carol's point, I'm on the third, third country. Look, I do, it's never, this is a, I've described it elsewhere as a kind of revolutionary moment, whether it's a revolution. Um, We are going to have to start thinking of ourselves as a third country because when we leave we are a third country and I know it's kind of jargon of Brussels but it's different being a third country from being a member and before the referendum I was talking a lot to Swiss and Norwegians and other third countries to think about what are we going to have to do with the UK permanent representation in the event of exit what is UK delegation going to look like post uh, post exit. I don't want to be too critical of government documents, Mm. it's it's understandable that people Mm. write down lots Mm. of stuff that they like about the status quo and want to perpetuate and then want to make an Mm. economic argument to former Mm. partners of you want to perpetuate this too because why would you want to screw us on aviation and financial Mm. services and energy and whatever because it all works very well and lots of stuff Mm. that we want continuity Mm. on. That isn't going to be where others start start from, and we are going to have to recognise that we're more in a Swiss-type relationship, and we are a third country, and will be, I'm afraid, by the capitals and the institutions, treated as a third country. Now the trick will be, we do want to be, you know, Whitehall has to get used to that, and has to start thinking like that, and has to start thinking we're no longer at the table in these fora, and we're not a a rule-maker, And we want a voice into these institutions and systems, but we're not part of it and we don't have votes there. We're going to have to think differently about that. That doesn't mean then being defeatist about what you can get as a third country or accepting Mm. that all we can get as a third country is, you know, what... what, Canada got. What Canada got. I think you can get a different and better... I don't think a Canada deal will work for the UK economy. And I think I'd be very surprised if Whitehall thought otherwise and Canada trade, flow, trade and investment flows with the EU are a minuscule proportion of EU flows. So do I think a Canadian-style free trade agreement for the UK will work uh, for us? No, I don't think it will. I think it would be bad for our economy and uh, a and, uh, and serious reduction in trade and investment flows if we ended up there. Yeah. So you shouldn't be defeatist on it, but you do have to start thinking differently We are now out of this club. We're a third country. We're going to be treated like a third country. We must lobby as a third country. And actually the skills we're going to need inside the UK permanent representation and across the system are very different from when you were always in Kaurapur and in working groups and you were one of the key players around the table at the microphone with 29 votes. And we're not in that world anymore. And I think we do have to... then I don't want to get personal on the kind of you know does it then matter whether it's a kind of fervent Brexiteer who's in charge of it I I don't think Whitehall is just viewing it as a kind of damage limitation exercise that wasn't my experience even in 2016 I think they are viewing it as and they should view it as potentially major supply side shock for the economy which it is because if you leave the single market the customs union that's a very big Mm. regime change that's not being negative Mm. about it if that's what elected politicians want to do and interpret to be the result of the referendum and that's sustainable with the public, then that's what we're going to do. But don't kid yourselves, leaving the Single Market Customs Union Mm. is a very major change in UK economic policy making and for various business sectors that will be extremely bad news and for some businesses it'll put them out of business. That doesn't mean to say that there won't be then other businesses in other sectors that won't thrive as a consequence of it, but it is a major supply side shock coming for the UK economy at the point that you exit. Um, On foreign foreign policy, I mean, I I couldn't agree more. The question is how do you do it and how institutionally do you do it and mm -hmm. has the other side of the table therefore there and have we as well Mm -hmm. got the agility to think through something which would have to be different and sui generis for the UK that doesn't apply to other third countries. Now, of course, we sit here thinking, well, it should apply to us because we're not Norway and not Switzerland Mm -hmm. and not Mm -hmm. Canada and we're a bigger strategic player and they should want us kind of in their councils and at the table... And it's not sensible for us simply to be treated as a sort of taker of their policy. So when they've decided to do, mm. s- do some stuff, then only be invited in at the implementation phase. That's not an appropriate role for a country mm. like the UK. That's, of course, the way we think about it. You don't need me to tell you that many other Europeans, not just in Paris, will think, but hang on again, you chose to leave the club. Mm. You're not at the Foreign Affairs mm. Council, you're not okay. at any other council, you chose to leave though, all those formations, mm. you thought that that's what was good for you. Mm. Why the hell should we give you speaking and voting and weight rights in terms of the direction of policy when you chose to leave the club that sets the policy? Now, you can say then to people, look, you're not mm. going to end up with a relationship where, you know, like in association agreements mm. with Ukraine or something, we have a once every six mm. monthly meeting on a Friday night with Federica mm. Mogherini and you regard that as you know, good enough for the UK because it won't work and we won't take it seriously and therefore the UK will go bilateral and all routes and think this is a total waste of time dealing with these people and then collectively we all suffer from that. Again, the point is, can the UK and the other Mm. side of the the table think innovatively and ingeniously Mm. about things that both sides are comfortable with, don't erode each other's kind of sovereign and autonomy, which will matter just as much to the French and Germans on Mm. the other side of the table as to us on our side of the table, but nevertheless maximise our collective weight when we choose to do something together of strategic importance in the globe? And I think it's a big question because at the moment I don't I don't see this game moving very far. I, again, I think you have to get beyond the withdrawal agreement and hopefully move into a different phase where people are thinking a bit more constructively about each other and thinking a bit more long term. Can
0: you think of an area where we sort of were constrained by you know some area that was sort of you know partly shared competence or community competence where the UK genuinely wanted to do something differently? In an international forum or somewhere, but where we were constrained by the fact that actually we had to, you know, argue our case in EU coordination and were represented by the EU. I mean, is there what any on areas on foreign policy side, on foreign hmm. or um, you know other international relations? Just sort of slightly wondering where where we felt we were constrained by EU membership.
1: Well, there are constraints in EU yeah. membership because obviously it, yeah. is a, it, it, it is a body where if you're mm-hmm. a part of it, there are various areas under shared and, and mixed competence or, or full community <laughs> competence where you're part of a body and you're, you, you're inevitably you know having to take an overall EU line. So were you ever like. to
0: tell your colleagues back in Whitehall you might want to do that, your Secretary of State might yeah, think that's a brilliant yeah, idea, but you can't? So what's the sort of examples, of one or two areas where we might be striking out, striking out on our own and really genuinely want to do something different than if we were constrained by EU membership?
1: Um, well, they, they, they don't instantly come to mind, but that's the whole yeah. experience of doing yeah. the job. Yes, you're constantly yeah. relaying back to Whitehall, you know, there are constraints, there's, this, this is where, uh, you know, either a unanimity or overall mm. a, yeah. a qualified majority of the council can be got. Mm. This, this is how far one can get yeah. the position. As the nature of the, being the permanent representative. You're always relaying mm-hmm. back to Whitehall, this is what's navigable, this mm-hmm. is what's doable, mm-hmm. this is how far I think mm-hmm. we can get it, that isn't the you know, mm-hmm. 100% of the outcome specified in my operating instructions.
0: Okay. So, yeah. Daniel's question about, yeah, does length of extension make any difference?
1: Well, I mean, the, the question others are asking themselves in other capitals, rather understandably, is, what's the point of an extension if it's just going to give the UK political class more time to waste, um, as it were? Um, if it's just more paralysis and mm-hmm. permitting them to be paralysed for longer, mm-hmm. why are we doing that? That doesn't mean to say, I, think, I don't think there's much appetite in most capitals or most mm. in Brussels to push the Brits off a cliff and say, be done with it. It's time to end this charade. Mm. Uh, and I do think leaders will think differently from technocrats mm. anyway. So if you reach March, mm. it still hasn't gone through on a meaningful vote. Uh, you know, presumably she'd be asking for more or saying she's going to have another meaningful vote on essentially the kind of same terrain. Yeah. Um, will leaders then, a week before the deadline, say, you know, sorry, end of this process, you always knew it was March the 29th, be, be gone with you. I doubt they will. <laughs> so I think you'd get some extension, even in circumstances where it wasn't for... It. Of course they're saying at the moment you only get an extension if it's for something and the for something has to be the implementation of the deal that you've passed. I doubt that would be exactly what leaders yeah. would do in March if it came to it. I do think there's a big doubt about, as I say, whether leaders Mm -hmm. will just think, well, we'd do that in March and then if they're still Mm paralysed in June, we do it again in June and then we do it again in September. Because I think then the other side is increasingly saying, but what's the point of this if they're just paralysed forever? Maybe we just have to conclude this game hasn't worked. Then we can come on to kind of what does that mean and what does No Deal look like and how would you you know if it does all fall mm-hmm. apart what happens then? But that's a so what about
0: managed what about Malthouse Plan B the sort of managed No Deal that we make good the budget for a couple of years, and we just get a bit more time to get our act together maybe do an FTA, you know we accept we're never going to reach agreement on the backstop so this is just a better way out. Any appetite for that?
1: Uh, I. In European capitals and in Brussels, zero, I think. Um, Look, we have to be honest here. Mm. They've gone through a painful process and negotiated amongst themselves uh, their own position, then agreed it with the Prime Minister, got the deal that the Prime Minister said she wanted on November the 25th, and she says to them on November the 25th, I'll now take it to a Mm. meaningful vote, and I may not win first time Mm. round, but I'll get it Mm. through. Um, And she's obviously exhorting them Mm. to back her up in saying Mm. it's the only deal in town um she's now gone back saying you know after the kind of brady amendment indicating that it isn't mm. the only deal in town and she wants revisions mm. to the deal and if that's a genuine reopening and some way overriding elements of the deal i don't think she'll get that um uh, i've lost my train of yep. thought
0: so two-year extension effectively we stay sort of you know lurking around have the transition the implementation period but in the knowledge that it's not to withdraw the agreement Yeah, the benefit for the EU is they don't have to deal with this hole in their budget. seems to be the offer, and we try and How do they they view no deal? Nobody
1: views no deal as a permanent end state. And nor does the British government, incidentally. I think it's important to... Why is Liam Fox and why is his Mm. department Mm. toting themselves around Mm. the world in order to get continuity Mm. on existing Mm. free trade deals which Mm. we have by Dint of EU membership? Because WTO Mm. terms are not as good Mm. as FTA terms. So why is the department strenuously Mm. trying to replicate the effects Mm. of existing FTAs? Because reverting to WTO terms is much worse than having the benefits of those Mm. FTAs. If that's true in global Mm. terms with the FTAs Mm. we have by Dint of EU membership, it's true with our relationship Mm. with the EU. So, I'm afraid the other side has never believed for mm. one minute that the government is at all serious about a no deal option because they don't think that no deal is mm. sustainable for mm. the UK economy. And they know that they look at the behaviour of UK ministers as opposed to what they say. And they know that UK ministers are acting as if WTO terms with anywhere else mm. in the world where we don't mm. operate on them are bad and a reversion <laughs> to something worse than they've got at the moment. Mm. If that's true in mm. EU FTAs, mm. it's true for the EU as well. Mm. No deal is therefore not a sustainable end state, and they know it. It, And and there are multiple sectors where WTO terms are essentially meaningless. What does Mm. that mean on energy Mm. and aviation and data and multiple other areas? So their view is there's no such thing as no deal as a sustainable. In Mm. the end, the Brits will want and should want, and we will want with them, a preferential Mm. trade deal. The question is the thickness Mm. of that preferential trade deal. Now there, you've got the contortions mm. about, does that mean you know, a thick deal of the sort that the Prime mm. Minister wants, at least on the good side, but mm. she doesn't appear to want it on the services side? Or does that mean a Canada-style mm. s- deal, which is much more mid-Atlantic mm. and going further out? There, everything I've ever had from opposite numbers mm. well before the referendum, when we mm. were discussing these questions mm. prospectively, was, look, that's your sovereign choice. If you don't want a customs union mm. in perpetuity, don't want to live with that, mm. you don't want to be in the single market, mm. and you want a much more distant mid-Atlantic mm. relationship, Frankly, their view is more fool you, Mm -hmm. but that's your sovereign Mm -hmm. choice. If that's your interpretation of what you wanted with Brexit, Mm -hmm. go ahead and do it. We're not going to stop... This idea that the Europeans are obsessed Mm -hmm. with trapping us in perpetuity in a customs union, does not bear any relationship to any Mm -hmm. discussion I've ever had with anybody, so I think it's an illusory fear. I think they might think Mm -hmm. that we were posse to choose to go out to a Canadian-style free trade deal for the UK Mm -hmm. and think that would be damaging for the UK economy, but in the end, that's our sovereign choice. So it's the depth of the FTA mm. that you would be getting into that is the uh, the real uh, the real question, mm. and there there's still a choice to be mm. made. We we know that a significant number mm. of the cabinet would really like to go in a more mm. Canadian mm. direction, and that the prime minister thinks that's damaging for the country, mm. which is why mm. she's ended up mm. with the model she pursued at mm. Chequers and has been pursuing mm. ever since. That's the that's the dynamic.
0: Okay, let's have some more questions, ladies there, and then we'll come he- here and Elliot back there. Yeah. Thank you, to, thank you to Patricia Rawlings. Um, do I gather from all what you've said that th- you think that the withdrawal agreement is going to go through, is going to be voted through now? And if so, what is your view, regardless, of uh, the status quo ante? Okay. Right, uh, let's go there, yeah. Hi,
1: um, my name is Emilio from Politics Home. Um, what do you think of the attacks that we've seen on Ollie Robbins? Um, and secondly, do you think the PM was wrong to set up the Brexit Department now that we've seen that she's basically taken over a lot of control that it had?
0: Yeah, and there. Yeah, um, Adam Penn from Business Insider. Uh, there's an idea that perhaps in a few years' time or even a few decades' time, there'll be a public inquiry into how the government has handled I want to Brexit. Run it. Do you think there will be, and do you think there ought to be, and why? That's my retirement job, so <laughs> nobody else can have it. Anyway, uh, one last question. Yes, here, final question, then we'll get Ivan to round up. Yeah.
1: Ivan, uh, assuming... Can you tell us who you are? Uh, John Burt. Uh, assuming there is a Brexit, um, where do you think the main domestic political, political rubs will occur in the future? And if you were advising a future Prime Minister, if we want to do better than the marked disunity we've experienced over mm. recent years, how would you organise the political process <laughs> to promote greater unity in the period ahead?
0: It's a bit of a killer final question there. <laughs> yes. Um, well,
1: so. I I'll leave that one to last. <laughs> um, uh, we'll, uh, look, I've, I can't judge whether the withdrawal agreement will go through. I, I think... Uh, it might, it might not. I can't give you a percentage. I never know what people base their percentages on anywhere, really, but I get constantly asked by private sector people what the percentages are. Um, it could still go through. In a sense, it's nice in this conversation to move it on to because regardless of whether we agree a withdrawal agreement, as I say, no deal is not an end state. So there's not a state of the world in which we're going to end up with no deal. And even the no dealers, they talk about manage no deal because they say the European Union will then come running and in multiple areas will want continuity with us and therefore it'll all be fine and dandy and we'll pay less money and won't have a backstop. Dream on. I mean, there's absolutely, you know, what would the EU side do in circumstances where it collapses? We walk away from the table. We say we're prepared to pay you half the money but not have the backstop. They'd say, well... Very best of luck with that. You know, we're ceasing normal relations. We're not negotiating an FTA Mm. with you until you come back to the table with the full money and Mm. an agreement on the backstop. I can guarantee you that Mm. would happen on the following morning. Uh, And my point, therefore, is this is all incredibly important. We're obsessing about it. We've been obsessing about many of the wrong issues now for two and three quarter years. The big issues Mm. are about where do we want to go post-Brexit and what does that look like and why. And we have to get on to that, and we're going to have to get on to that whether or not we sign this withdrawal agreement in the, you know, in the next few, few days or not. It's not going to go away, and nor will the European Union go away. We can't live in glorious isolation and not have, for the rest of the working mm-hmm. lives of all the government and all parliamentarians, an ongoing negotiation with the European Union on loads of very important issues. Talk to the Swiss, talk to the Norwegians. They live in an, enti- an entirely permanent negotiation, state of permanent negotiation mm-hmm. with the European Union. We aren't going to be able to avoid that. This, these sort of fantasies of release and liberation, they are fantasies. We are going to be negotiating on everything from, as to say, aviation to energy to phytosanitary mm. to financial services forevermore with our biggest neighbor. Um, Brexit, look, the, the attacks on officials, I got quite quite used to this stuff when I, when I was mm. there. I think this isn't healthy, um, but it seems to be the world we currently inhabit. Um, I think it's quite dangerous when you know, individual bureaucrats get demonized for doing things which they've obviously been asked to do mm-hmm. by their kind of political bosses and political superiors. Mm-hmm. And you know, they're carry- carrying mm-hmm. out in very difficult environment you know, political instructions and doing their damnedest to deliver the best result for the country. That's all mm-hmm. that any of us in the civil service exists to do. Mm-hmm. And you're asked to do it by the people you're working for. Mm-hmm. It's not that you're uh, you know, contriving agendas they don't mm-hmm. support. Brexit department, think I've said this before, I do think the structure was a mistake Mm. from the outset, both the DEXU and uh, DIT. Nothing against loads Mm. of excellent people in in both, doing a fantastic job in very difficult circumstances to deliver Mm. what they're trying to deliver. Structurally, do I think it was the right answer in 2016? No. And I think it did put, um, you know, Ollie Robbins, for one, Mm. in a very difficult position because he had to be both Sherpa to the Prime Mm. Minister and, as I say, eyes Mm. and ears and mouth of the Prime Minister working direct to her, but also run a department and set up a department working to a Secretary of State. And you were inevitably going to create the tensions between the Secretary of State and him because there are something. I've been the Sherpa, and I know what the Sherpa job involves, as well as the Perm Rep job, and there are some things which you're only going to go to the Prime Minister on, and you're dealing solely with the Prime Minister on, and she isn't necessarily going to deal with Secretaries of State, and that's not just this current Prime Minister, that's any Prime Minister, and that then immediately leads to kind of erosion of trust, uh, uh, you know, between the top official and the Secretary of State. So should we the other? Re- well, we should- the other reason not to do it, which I think we've seen hmm. why he then got, brought into number mm. 10, is my point about mm. you know, coordination, umpiring mm. and adjudication. You can't do that mm. from an individual department which has its own skin in the game. Mm. And I saw that happen almost immediately when Dexu was established mm. in, in Brussels, from the Brussels end, which is that other departments started clamming up on Dexu mm. in a way that they wouldn't have clammed up on the Cabinet Office, and they started clamming mm. up on UcREP mm. as well because mm. they thought, well, hang on, because we were mm. then told we were working for both Dexia and the Foreign Office, and immediately people Mm. then start to think, yeah, but hang Mm. on, David Davison, the Secretary of State, Mm. has his own position Mm. in this game, and my Secretary of State Mm. doesn't necessarily Mm. want to Mm. divulge. Now, for the centre, if you're the centre, you have this umpiring adjudication coordinating function, and you have to deliver trust Mm. across the top of the system at the bureaucratic Mm. level, and to individual secretaries of state, that you're not going to screw them, Mm. and even if you're going to advise Mm. the Prime Minister that you don't back their judgment, Mm. and you think other Mm. things are more important, that that's going to be known to them and visible to them. The moment you've got DexU there as a player, structurally I think it's the wrong answer, and also you can see, again it's not a state secret, you can see the tensions that exist between DexU and DIT now. DIT has its own a raison d'être, a very important raison d'être. There is a you know, massive question of British trade mm. policy and the future direction of it, but DIT is obviously not really being allowed in the EU, the negotiation. Again, I th- those tensions are not going to go away. They're not going to go away in the next round because there will be people in DIT, maybe both political mm. and official, who think it's more important to do you know, trade deals with the US and mm. Japan and China and Mercosur than it is to get the deal right with the EU. I might not agree with that mm. position, but it's perfectly legitimate for a Secretary of State to be arguing for it and saying we're, d- we're in the wrong place and we're privileging the mm. wrong things. You, c- you, you have to internalise that beneath mm. the Prime Minister mm. in one place, and that mm. has to be in the Cabinet Office, because all those issues have to be brought out by the team around her. Whereas if the team around her, working through the Secretary mm. of State for the Brexit Department, mm is actually overwhelmingly on one side of that debate, mm. then it's going to lose trust elsewhere in the system. So should
0: we get rid of the Brexit department now? Is it personally, the I, I, well, As I say,
1: personally, I, I would, and I do think... You don't have these layers on the other side of the table, and that tells mm. you a lot. The EU may be um, you know, pretty poor at lots of mm. things in the implementation of lots of things, and there's lots that one could say about the Commission... Um, it is a very good trade negotiator and it knows what it's doing on trade negotiations and it has a structure of inter-service consultation mm. and inter-cabinet consultation that works. I've been there 20 years ago, I'm out of date on that, but I've seen it from the outside. It works, and it's a very sophisticated top-level trade negotiator at global mm. level with, alongside mm. you know, US, US and China and Japan. It knows what it's doing. It does not have three layers. It has a you know a DG mm-hmm. trade. It has a sec gen function mm-hmm. around the president. It doesn't have the, the third layer. We've created a system where you have a number ten unit which is really working to the boss, a dexu which is working mm-hmm. partly to the secretary of state and partly supplementing working mm-hmm. to the boss. But then, and then the layers of department. You don't need three layers. You need two in my mm-hmm. view. So I would I would I'm afraid uh, get rid of it. Mm-hmm. I would I think have a. Top ministerial mm. chief negotiator as well as a, mm. uh, an official mm. trade negotiator, but I think that person has to be the Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster working in the Cabinet Office, not yeah. the Secretary of State for uh, uh, DEXU. But I'm, I'm sure that won't happen, mm-hmm. but I mean, that's my, that's my personal view. Mm-hmm. Um, now, what was the uh,
0: public inquiry? Adam's point about is there going to be a public inquiry? Should there be a public inquiry? <laughs>
1: Who knows whether there will be? Um, you know, we obviously have a bit of a British tradition of having these public inquiries years after the event and then producing voluminous tomes, and then I'm not quite sure you know, what lessons are ever learnt from them and then applied to the subsequent crisis, which is deemed a different crisis. Um, is it healthy? Would it be cathartic? Um, I mean, I think there's an awful lot that one could go through and an awful lot that, that, that could be looked at. I'm not sure it's going to be productive, and it's so raw at the moment. My worry now, given mm. I'm only a punter and a citizen mm. now, my worry is you know, the state of the country is kind of more mm. divided and more bitter, uh, it seems to me, than it was in 2016. If we're going to come through the Brexit crisis, and it is turning mm. into uh, you know, a constitutional and political crisis and may turn into an economic crisis, if we're going to come through it, we've somehow got to be united behind some version of Brexit that works for a really rather large number of people across the spectrum um uh, that's not where we're headed at the moment which is why the divisions are getting worse does a public inquiry help with that or does it you know uh, scratch away at, at very raw mm-hmm. wounds on all sides of this i'm not i'm not sure that doesn't mean to say that you shouldn't the system i would hope must be going through a hell of a lot of reflection as to you know how the hell have we ended up here and have we really organized mm-hmm. ourselves very effectively over mm-hmm. the last 30 months um, and, the, and the system is suffering. It's not just mm. a Whitehall system. I think it's a broader political system crisis that mm. we're going through. We're, you know, it, again, it's a regime change. We shouldn't be surprised that you can't have a revolution without some revolutionary consequences, but has the system collectively, both mm. in both houses and in Whitehall, got a lot to think about, about how have we handled this, and could we have done it better? Yes, I think it has.
0: And John Wirt's final question. Um, Domestic political
1: rubs. Well, I think it comes back to my kind of transparency and openness point. We are, let's say we get into this trade discussion. In practice, it'll then be three or more years after the referendum before we even start it. We'll start it with a European Commission. It'll be the new European Commission. We don't yet know their structure and which commissioner presumably put a vice president in charge of the Mm -hmm. British negotiation. We know that it's going to, let's hope that, Some of the heat goes out of the debate, people think that Brexit is done, we've got the other side of Brexit and therefore it's not on the front page of every newspaper every day and people are bored rigid by it because that might be quite healthy in terms of ever doing anything in a trade deal. We know that in huge numbers of sectors of the economy and as well as on the kind of security and foreign policy and internal security agenda, there are massively difficult controversial issues coming our way We could write the best mandate in Whitehall, um, you know, hundreds of pages long about everything that we want to achieve. We know that a significant proportion of it, with the best will in the world, we're not going to achieve because the other side won't want it and won't look at the world in the same way. And we know, therefore, at the end of the Mm -hmm. trade deal, say that's three to five years down the track, and I think it's more likely to be that than two years down the track, we will have some very difficult decisions to take inside the system at government level as to what counts most and what are we prepared to give in order to get it and where are we on the trade-off between sovereignty and market access in particular, which is the core trade-off. You can only persuade the public or the majority of the public that uh, you've come to a pretty good set of conclusions where the establishment hasn't again sold them down the river and betrayed their interests by being pretty open about what the trade-offs are, what the choices are, articulating a narrative, saying what you're doing, because otherwise you're only ever going to hear from the losers. The big difficulty in all trade negotiations I've ever done is you hear from the losers Mm. and you hear from the producer Mm. groups. You never hear from the beneficiaries Mm. and you never hear from the consumer groups. So you can make diffuse gains in consumer Mm. sector, which was the natural Mm. treasury position, Mm. and you can see that with Liam Fox and Philip Hammond on the Mm. agriculture issue. Mm. You never hear from the gainers, Mm. and you're never thanked by the punters. You're always abused Mm. by the losers. So say we end up in a difficult world where we decide in the end to privilege various kind of services interests, and we're prepared to make concessions Mm. on free movement to people, and we're prepared to do things on the fisheries sector, for example, Mm. which is... Hugely politically mm. sensitive, but not very economically mm. important. <laughs> Just imagine the politics of that where fishing communities mm. who think they mm. were promised a hell of a lot in 2016 mm. feel here we go again, we've been sold down the river by the establishment, they told us they wouldn't do mm. it. That's where we're headed by 2020 to 21. Now, there's no very easy way through that, but the best way through it surely is to have a pretty open, mm. serious, honest debate about where are we going, why are we going there, what are the choices facing us. What are we trying to do with the EU? What are we trying to do outside Mm -hmm. the EU? If you can't, as a leader and as a government, articulate that in a way that cuts through to the public, they're going to be in a hell of a lot of trouble in three years' time.
0: OK, Ivan. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Just uh, just to say two things. Uh, Ivan's got to go to his book launch in Bath. (laughs) It's number nine on the Sunday Times bestseller, but Ivan has given us about 47. That's because we've sold three. 47 copies of his book, available to people who are here outside. So if you want to go and get a book, go fight for it now. I'm sure all of you have got it already. And just to say that uh, that we are producing our own Institute for Government report, um, which I wanted to call coming third, which is going to be called Negotiating Brexit, the Future Relationship, which is actually looking at many of these issues, and we actually come to many of the same conclusions as Ivan does about how Whitewater has set itself up to succeed in the future Uh, relationship when we honestly thought of those conclusions before we heard Ivan (laughs) just now. We're not about to go and massively redraft it. So uh, look out for that. Look out for managing migration after Brexit, Uh, out later this week about immigration policy after Brexit. Thank you all very much for coming and come back to the Institute again. Thank you very much.